2: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever
1: you get your podcasts. Here we are. Joe Hagan, Emily Jane Fox. We are inside the hive.
0: Back and ready for action.
1: Back for action. And... Uh, the skies are clearing, at least, literally. In today, your case. I just,
0: I just, I just got to show Joe. I showed him a little video of what the sky is finally looking like here in Los Angeles. I see blue sky for the first time today. It has been so smoky. The air quality app, which I've been obsessively monitoring over the last week, finally shows good this morning. So I'm going to take that as an omen, and it's. I guess it's the true silver lining of our conversation today, right? Because you are getting into an interview that is uh, not blue sky. There is no sunshine.
1: Sobering, in it. sobering to say the least. The irony, just you know, to stay for a moment on the weather patterns. The irony is that the red haze that has been covering California during these wildfires has made its way east. Mm. And last night, we could see them in our own skies, and I was getting reports from friends of mine in Massachusetts, even Vermont, that they were seeing the red haze that had traveled all the way from California. You know, if you need any evidence that the world is interconnected and that, you know, the weather is our climate, uh, there it was in red.
0: Well, Joe, it makes me feel connected to you under the same fucked up sky In the same scientific reality, though, our president seems to not believe in science. Science who, really? Who's that guy? Yeah,
1: yeah. Who is that, Mr. Science? Uh, Yeah, this week I'm talking to uh, a historian named Peter Peter Fritchie. He wrote a book, came out this summer. It was uh, reviewed in the Times. It was called Hitler's First Hundred Days When Germans Embraced the Third Reich. Now, inside the hive, we're not going to turn into the History Channel, uh, or promise you some sort of BBC-like documentary, uh, you know, with black and white um, film footage and, and so forth. But there's a, a way in which this is very much in the news, which is this is very relevant to things that are happening this week. You know, for the last many years, the term Nazi, fascist, and so forth has been used as a kind of, polit- you know, a cheap political bludgeon, right?, Uh, on Twitter or on TV, you know, people say, oh, that person's acting like a Nazi. They are a Nazi. I mean, in the last three or four years, uh, I tried to resist going there. But recently, uh, alarm bells have been going off in my mind. And I think for a lot of people who are looking at the news and beginning to wonder if the echoes uh, of fascism and Nazism that we learn about Um, are happening right now uh, during this election in Trump's America and in the form of Trump, but also William Barr. Have you been following some of the things that William Barr has been saying this week?
0: I have been following them, and I have been talking to people in Trump world about what is happening. And uh, someone put it to me very succinctly yesterday, and it's someone who's been around uh, President Trump long before he was president when he was just plain old Donald Trump. And he said to me, the only thing that, that he could say was he really finally got his Roy Cohn, but this Roy Cohn just happens to be in the shape of a Republican man who used to be respected. And yeah. he is a lackey of the highest degree. It is... It is norm-shattering. It is sort of heartbreaking. It's appalling, and um, I, I mean, I've I think we have all felt that way for many, 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 many months. This week in particular, it feels like it feels like he has just sort of lost the thread. I I kind of felt this way about um, Ivanka Trump during watching Ivanka Trump during the RNC, where I've covered her so closely for five years, and. Uh, I've seen this evolution of like, so so many people don't accept her and she gets criticized for everything she does, mostly rightly. And so she sort of hardened into this position of, well, they're going to say bad shit about me anyway, so I'm just going to do what I want to do and whatever is going to serve me best at present moment. And I feel like we've seen that with Bill Barr this week. We've seen he's been rightly criticized for every action he's taken in order to protect his boss, President Trump for the last, however many months at this point, he has been uh, attorney general. And um, I, I think that w- what we're seeing is someone who is hardened into his position.
1: Uh, you know, he's letting his freak flag fly. Uh, can Can we say that? I mean, whereas he was supposed to be, you know, a, uh, a, a ostensibly nonpartisan, uh, you know, judicious, uh, objective <gasps> observer of the law. See, and and there's another um, critique that I think we should my puppy take into hates account. him. <laughs> she hates him. <laughs> but this week he comes out in an interview um, and says, you know, that the U.S. is going down the quote unquote socialist path if Trump is not reelected. He's talking about charging protesters with sedition. This is a guy who has flexing his muscle on behalf of Trump in a way that is frightening, frankly, and a lot of people are frightened by it. I see, I, we see newscasters uh, who is, uh, you know, normally trying to you know, show a level of objectivity, but whose jaws are hanging down listening to this man speak. And the reason it's relevant to today's interview is that it was exactly this kind of um, you know, fear-mongering to the public that if you do not vote in and elect Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists into power in Germany in 1933, you are going to face chaos on the streets from socialists, from Bolsheviks, right? In fact, You know, uh, I I mentioned in an interview a couple weeks ago, this guy, Matt Schlapp, the head of CPAC. Okay. Uh, I saw the other day he posted uh, a picture that he had put a sign in his yard. It said, America or socialism, right? That's your choice. America or socialism. Well, this is exactly what the Nazis did. They said, you have one choice, Marxism or the German people, Mm. right? And... This historian, Peter Fritchie, who I'm going to be speaking with and who you'll be hearing from momentarily, uh, draws all of these interesting parallels. There are distinctions, but what's frightening, Emily, is that there are becoming less and less distinctions in the historical analogy Mm. than than is comfortable. Mm. And, um, you know, last uh, interview I did was with Stuart Stevens, the former GOP strategist who has sort of renounced his membership in the Republican Party. And he began to, in his interview, talk about some of the analogies with early rise of the Nazi Party. And he himself was frightened as somebody who had studied this history. And so that was the reason I thought I'd bring this guy on and talk to him today. And he's incredibly illuminating, smart. And lastly, um, there was a poll this week that showed... Young millennials and Generation Z in this country, the the unbelievable ignorance about the Holocaust.
0: Those numbers, uh, th-
1: yeah, mind blowing.
0: I I honestly don't know how we got to a place where those are present day realities. You have to hope that the that the numbers and the polling is not right. I or, I, I truly my my puppy again she's just like she's on it today she's
1: distressed she's distressed. I, I don't blame it. her
0: I feel she feels my energy she feels the earth's energy and she's just speaking her mind more power to her I I have to hope the numbers are wrong I fear that they're not. Uh, do, do you have right. the numbers in front of you?
1: Well 63 percent, according to this poll did not know that six million Jews had died in the Holocaust a, a an alarming amount had never heard of Auschwitz. Um, A number of them, I think it was something like, um, you know, maybe 11% thought the Jews uh, were behind the Holocaust. I mean, a complete, uh, you know, as if they had studied history uh, through a telescope with a book like, you know, a mile away. I mean, it's, it's alarming and distressing, which is yet again a reason I felt like compelled this week to... Give ourselves some historical context. You know, we're caught up in the news from week to week. Let's pan back and think about where we are and go into this fall and into this election with eyes wide open.
0: Let's get to it, because anything that I could say pales in comparison to, I'm sure, what you guys talked about. So let's just hop right in.
1: Peter Fritchie, welcome to Inside the Hive. Uh, We're happy to have you here today. Well,
2: great pleasure. Thanks.
1: So... We are here uh it's a, an unusual uh interview for us. We're talking to Peter Fritchie, a, a historian of Nazi Germany and author of a book that came out this summer, Hitler's First 100 Days When Germans Embraced the Third Reich. And um it's an unusual uh book about that time because it really looks at the blow by blow, day by day, kind of politicking and behind the scenes, but also the street level uh, events that were leading to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis and the takeover of Germany in 1933. And there are unique historical and economic trends at work at that time, and it's a different culture than uh, America in many ways. But the broad outlines of what was happening bear a striking resemblance as I was reading it. So some of the things that we're seeing right now. And as you have pointed out to me, uh Peter, one of the most uh kind of interesting parallels is just the sense of surprise and shock, uh, and the unlikeliness of Hitler's you know rise to power. He was an unlikely figure um in an otherwise democratic country. And that parallel is one we're seeing and have seen with the rise of Trump uh, in this country. And, um, you know, when you were writing this book, I have to assume some of it was being written while Trump was rising to power. Did you see some of these parallels? And can we, as I was reading it, a lot of it seemed to be right there in black and white, the similarities. were. Did you yourself recognize them and see them as you yes, were writing the book?
2: I, I have to plead guilty. The, I was driving to the airport in November 2016 and uh, decided on the format of the book, and the contract was signed two or three days before uh, the inauguration in January 2017. And it was the idea of the unexpected and and what was now to come when we didn't imagine either Trump as president or the mood of the country as what it was uh, three or four or five years before that. And one of the great mysteries in German history is, is indeed how Hitler, um, who was a uh, had a large voting block behind him, but it was a minority block, was able to win over the majority of the nation, and and do so rather quickly and do so rather firmly. And so uh, these hundred days, or you could say two hundred days, uh, have been um, historians go back to it again and again because the temperature of Germany changed, the kinds of decisions that people made changed. You had a, a very, very uh, partisan, divided country. You had communists, socialists, Nazis. And then suddenly, by the summer of two, 1933, you, seem, you have this seeming unanimity, the seeming unity, where people who oppose the Nazis are suddenly marginalized as traitors. And this is just such a big change from January 1933, from November 1932, from the five elections that Germany had in the year 1932, where there was just so much partisan hoopla, and everybody had a political position and showed it on their lapels, on the flags that they showed in their apartments. And then suddenly that was all gone. So people were surprised, and people were disoriented about what they were seeing in front of them. Uh, and, uh, Hitler had always been underestimated, but, but he surely was the leader of the uh, largest party in Germany. So in that sense, uh, he was very much present in all conversations that people had at dinner parties or over the kitchen table revolved around him. But nonetheless, how it all transpired, uh, and to get from January to May, yes, that was a, a surprising and disorienting series of events.
1: Right. In your book, you really beautifully describe the mood of Germany um, in the lead up to the elections of late 1932 through letters and diaries and newspapers and how uh, the National Socialist Party and Adolf Hitler exploited this sort of fear of a radical left, a sense that the right – Uh, could establish law and order against potential violence. And in these rallies that Hitler held, he underlined and underscored these points repeatedly. And one of his political messages was, there can be only one victor, Marxism or the German people. And, you know, it reminded me of yard signs I've seen. uh, America or socialism, you know, that's your choice. Um, Describe for me how the Nazis framed these ideas in the lead up to Hitler's takeover in 1933.
2: Well, the, first of all, the Nazis very uh, energetically tried to frame themselves as stewards of the uh, German people. And the German people did not include the enemies of the German people. Uh, it didn't include the Jews, and it didn't include uh, the uh, traitors who had mutinied in the revolution of 1918, 15 years before. And so when you say, you know, it's either Bolshevism or, or, or the German people, uh, Bolsheviks, and inside the Bolsheviks are also the moderate socialists, and you know all other enemies. Um, those aren't the German people; uh, they're non-Germans, they're traitors, and um, and they are the enemies of the German people. And the German people must rally in order to protect themselves um, from these alien forces. So it's a us them argument that becomes increasingly um, plausible, incredible uh when um the one one hitler's in power when he can use the power of the radio and the power of the office to suggest that, that that we're on on the very eve of a communist uh uprising and um and that the the communists are about to, to create a coup d'état to kidnap uh, all sorts of leading citizens and to blow up bridges this was all without evidence uh because it, there is no evidence but um, but he really created uh, the Nazis really created a, situ- a, a, a sense right before those last elections in March 1933 that Germany was on the verge of being overrun by the Bolsheviks, and this played into, anyways, how middle class Germans thought of the, the communists and the socialists. Germany was so divided that even moderate socialists and and uh, middle class nationalists rarely worked together, even at the local level. So this kind of us, them, gained uh, credibility, and Hitler, more and more effectively, in his rallies, in the radio, once he's in power, uh, is able to um, pose as the steward of the German people who will protect them and then lead them into a new era of prosperity. And that is that is the key with the Third Reich. He does not want the Kaiser back. The Kaiser thinks the Kaiser's coming back, but the Kaiser's wrong. The... Um, he wants a Third Reich, and he doesn't want to. Uh, you know, you you can honor the past. That that's fine, and that's exactly where the Kaiser should stay in the past, uh, an honorable past. Um, but this is a new future led by a uh, front line soldier, not a general, um, and and not a uh, not a not a representative of the elites. Uh, Hitler's popularity and his success is because he is a, a regular man a uh, regular frontline officer like so millions of other uh Germans and uh has no status and class pretensions and doesn't doesn't talk in those ways and so it's not a restoration of the kaiserreich uh what it is is the destruction of the weimar republic in order uh which is an unhealthy degenerate form uh in order to get to a healthy unified uh remilitarized germany
1: it's probably important to note for people who might not have the historical context here that the Weimar Republic was the previous government regime uh, perceived to have been adrift and unresponsive at a time when the Great Depression had come along. And by the way, National Socialists uh, was a kind of a confusing name because they weren't socialists per se.
2: They were not socialists, but they talked about collective responsibilities and they talked about the prior right of the nation as a collective entity over and above family and individual, and certainly a priority over any internationalist, uh, allegiances and, uh, and, right. Um, right. and, and uh, alliances. So, uh, right. the key actually to understanding the Nazis is to look back at their name, uh, uh, the, uh, Ger- National Socialist German Workers' Party. It has all those elements. It suggests it's moving beyond the old right. Uh, it has a new right position, and it will embrace workers as sons of the nation, as former veterans in the World War, uh, and it will bring workers back into the fold of the German nation, um, but it will not be uh, um, uh, standard socialism. Um, it will be collective responsibilities uh, based on uh, the priority of the nation, and that is what's going to make Germany strong. But it, but Germany can't do it without all c- classes coming together, including the working class. So that is its its great ambition. And in some ways, um, the Nazis were, in fact, uh, the most diverse, uh, socially diverse political party in Germany. They had more Catholics right. than any non-Catholic party, and they had more workers than any non-socialist party. Uh, So their claim to be a people's party uh, and to represent all classes is, uh, is, is, is credible in some ways.
1: I'd like to back up here for a second, because the reason I wanted to have you on is because many people are using terms like Nazism and fascism to talk about Trump. And of course, there are ways in which it's a broad stroke analogy and a political attack. But there are also Lessons to be drawn, real lessons, and alarm bells that history is ringing for us today. You know, this belligerent populism, fear of the other, you know, pulling away from other countries, which is something the Nazis also promised to do, to pull out of European treaties. But as a historian, when drawing these analogies between what happened then and what we're seeing now, tell us what's useful and what isn't.
2: Well, analogies aren't maps, Uh, but if you don't talk about analogies, uh, you're blind. And, uh, this was a, uh, complex industrial society, uh, with, with lots of cultural innovation and technological innovation, uh, that, um, had, uh, a large democratic following at the beginning of the revolution in 1918, 1919. Two-thirds of all Germans voted for the democratic, uh, republic, uh, and its supporters. Uh, but this two thirds uh they lost half, so it was only one third of Germans at the end who supported the democratic party so within ten twelve years uh you you can have this enormous uh sea change in the points of orientation that people make and so it's not democracy uh per se, and then um voting for parties within it, it's an, uh, it's an outright rejection of democracy and parliamentary methods as um, deunifying, uh, splintering, fragmenting, and actually sapping uh, the strength of the German nation. And so all sorts of procedural things about democracy, about law, um, all that is less important than re- for the Nazis and their supporters than reestablishing the the greatness and prosperity uh, of Germany, and putting Germany back on the right track, and democracy was seen as an impediment uh, to all of that. This, I think, is uh, echoes today in the sense that um, the partisanship is so deep that um, Trump supporters and the Republican Party, because I think that's where the the, the ill effects of the partisanship mostly not exclusively lie are willing to jettison uh the procedures and practices of democracy in order to gain um, hegemony and power uh in order to uh make america great again in their uh, in their vision and so the supporters right. to to support your enemy and to protect your enemy in order to have a free press in order to have proper elections um, all of that is uh, jettisoned because the choice is uh, for for so many Nazi supporters and middle class Germans, um, the German people, or Marxism. Get rid of 1918 and or uh, accept 1918 and the revolution, or embrace uh, the new vision of the Third Reich in 1933. That's how people saw it, and so they were willing to allow um, violence untold violence against uh, uh the uh, the opponents of the nazis um the closure of the press and uh, ultimately the destruction of democracy from the local to the state uh, and then of course to the national level right the the uh the the idea that the socialists would return to government and i'm i'm not talking about communists here i'm talking about moderate middle-aged mm. men that they would uh, be returned to government was worse than anything else. Hmm. And and so in the end, um, they accepted Hitler. And more than that, Hitler had the soldiers. He had the troops. He had the votes. He, he was the leader of the largest German party. He had 400,000 people in uniform as a paramilitary troop whose violence suggested that we are going to turn the page and to turn the page and to get to the next chapter of German history, we will. There, the violence is necessary. We have to get rid of the uh, German Revolution of 1918. We have to, we have to fight it and win it, uh, rather than uh, lose it as we did in 1918. That's their thinking. So they have to go straight through a civil war uh, before they can get to their uh, Third Reich. And that's why the violence is accepted. That's why. Um, the closure of the uh, press and the newspapers is, is accepted, and that's why a democracy is not mourned, because that is the way to get to this uh, better future. This is Inside the Hive.
0: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry.
2: I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hive today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com slash hive.
1: Well it reminds me, and I mean this is your your appearance here today couldn't be more timely, thinking about the statements that we've been hearing from William Barr, the U.S. Attorney General this week, right? He's talking about charging, you know, protesters with sedition, suing the mayor of Seattle. He's al- he's. He said out loud that you know if Trump is not reelected, that we're going to be in chaos, right? There's going to be uh, – bad things are going to happen, right? This is the, 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 the head of the Justice Department. He's already showed a willingness to the Trump administration to send military forces into Portland, to use the military against unarmed civilians and to kind of look the other way when uh, militias uh, who are pro-Trump – are creating, you know, violence on the street or bringing guns into the street. And it reminded me I'm reading your book uh, about, you know, uh, Herman uh, Goring issuing, you know, a shoot to kill order against, quote unquote, terrorists without regard to consequences. Uh, I'm reading from your book now. The failure to act exactly. against communists was a more serious dereliction of duty than use of excessive force. Like they they created a a sense that there was so much danger on the other side that anything is justified.
2: Exactly and it, it, these were terrorists, and they were seditious and so the point of comparison is not the scale. Um, there are far more militia men in Germany than there are in the United States. The audacity of the Nazi party is far greater. The ability of the Nazis to rely on traditional German elites uh, may also be greater in, in in the judiciary in the universities, for example, uh, also in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh but what is but the point of comparison is also that this discourse exists, that um, political opponents have become political enemies and political traitors and that the federal government then under this administration uh feels uh that it has the uh opportunity and the right to impose a law and order regime of its own making on recalcitrant municipalities and states none of this we would have imagined 5 years ago uh, and we see it now and we also don't see anybody on the other side on the GOP side uh saying this is not right um and elections have to be proper and the mail has to be delivered and the uh, ballots counted and um so they they're anticipating a chaos that then they can respond to uh, but they're also creating the chaos. Uh, the Nazis always, 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 uh, reestablished law and order after, uh, fomenting violence and disorder. Uh, right. So in a way, cleaning up their own mess in order to, uh, tighten the screws, uh, of their own rule. And in, and in that sense, we have, we have these similarities. There are, there are also differences, but, um, those, those would be the similarities that, better Trump than Clinton, um, um, better better Trump as he is than Democrats, uh, because uh, the Democrats are socialists and seditious, um, to talk in terms of a culture war, to talk in terms of existential uh, um, identities. And um, that is immediately to fracture the American uh, citizenry right down the middle. And you're getting close to calling opponents Enemies and
1: traitors. Oh well, they—I mean, they've done that, I believe. Uh, you know, at least their their allies in the press and so forth. And and one of the things you point out in the book is—and uh, these analogies again are probably broad—but you know, the uh, when Hitler sort of uh, brokers his rise to Chancellor of Germany, he does so uh, with the help of other. You know, leaders of other parties who weren't necessarily his allies, but who became kind of convenient partners in it. And, and I'm talking now about Paul um, Hindenburg and uh, um, Franz von Papen, who who was mentioned in an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago with Stuart Stevens, the GOP strategist. But um, that and and the way that he was able to um, kind of push those guys aside and really claim ultimate power, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from reading your book, it seems like part of it was to do exactly what we're talking about, create a sense of a permanent state of siege, right?
2: Exactly. That, that, that's the basis of the Constitution of the Third Reich, is a permanent state of war um, where 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 enemies are constantly lurking to um, undermine the German nation. And it's just World War One made permanent. Uh, Germany Uh surrounded by enemies in the First World War. And this this then is the uh, portrait that they have in their heads uh, that uh, Germany is constantly on the verge of extinction and must preemptively fight, uh, whether it's against uh, socialists and communists in 1933 or against uh, Jews or against the Soviet Union uh, in 1941. The dance that Hitler plays with the elites is a two-step dance before he becomes chancellor, he he has to dance with them because only they can maneuver him into power. He does not have a parliamentary majority. And so right. he has to, they have to be willing to give him emergency powers and they have to be willing to give him the opportunity of new elections in order to somehow barrel through a parliamentary uh, majority in the next election. And these elites were reluctant to do so. Um, They wanted Hitler's uh, dynamic party as a partner, but they didn't want Hitler as a highly partisan party leader as chancellor. But then something happened, and that is the November 1932 elections. Germany has tons of elections. Now we're at the last round in 1932. And what the elites see is they see 100 communists enter the Reichstag the parliament building, and they see 10% of the Nazis leave uh, because uh, they lost votes in that last round of elections. And suddenly the communists are are the third largest party in Germany, and, and quite large, almost as large as the Social Democrats. And this convinces them that they have only now the last opportunity still to use the dynamic forces of the Nazis before they um, Go bankrupt in a new series of elections, um, and and to to use those patriotic and nationalist forces in order to destroy democracy and create a new authoritarian state, one in which they think they can control Hitler. Um, this is their moment, and now they are they're willing they're willing to they're willing to have Hitler as chancellor, whereas before they
1: were not. Yeah, boy. I mean the 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 analogy. I mean the 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 echo of the GOP in you know seeing Trump as a controllable populist force, right? Who who, who to whom they lose control, right?
2: Absolutely, of the right. party. And he has a he has tremendous uh, enthusiasm and passion behind him. He can ra- physically rally the base uh, in ways right. that. That, that 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 they can't in a way that uh, Cruz can't or Rubio can't uh, and they right. and they see that that you know it, it, that this popular force is, it, they want they want the energy of that force uh, but but in the end that's the reason they can't tame Trump because Trump has all these democratic uh treasures he has the popularity that he has coming out of the primary, uh, he has all these people coming to rallies. Uh, and so he has this grassroots enthusiasm, and the elites don't have that. They don't have these uh, these uh, resources, and so they will they will very quickly get sidelined. And that's exactly what happens after uh, Hitler comes to power. He doesn't have a lot of Nazis in the cabinet, but he still has uh, this huge percentage of the German vote. He still has many Nazi newspapers. He still has his um, brown uniform militia men. And that is what, uh, determines, uh, power in, a, in an open democratic society, uh, not the, not the opinions of the elite. Uh, so he's very quickly able to outmaneuver them. Once he's in power, he has control over the radio, and, uh, he can summon up the enthusiasm of his base, which, which looks like it's a national uprising, uh, patriotic uprising, and, and one by one, uh, the right-wing leaders say this is just fine.
1: Yeah. You describe really interestingly in your book uh, when when Adolf Hitler is uh, campaigning, how he, you know, the spectacle of his rallies were these sort of like entertainment spectacles in the countryside and, you know, the beer halls and the, uh, you know, he'd go out to these sleepy hamlets and it was almost like a circus had come to town. Right. And this gave this was part of his power. Right. And you you definitely show how later on he kind of brings that to the radio and he was a master of of the media in some way. And he he kind of learned how to, uh, you know, deliver uh, on the radio and take that what had been just rallies to uh, the media. Um, and it just I don't you know, as I'm reading your book, you don't really mention Trump in, uh, you know, the fir- the Hitler's first hundred days. But. The underlying uh, similarities are, are kind of, again, alarming. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I want to just point out that we talk about, you know, well, let's not draw rash historical analogies, but uh, there was just a, a uh, poll this week uh, that showed among millennials and Generation Z how little uh, many of them know about uh, the consequences of uh, of the Holocaust, right? Of a society that saw said we have to restore, uh, you know, some sort of racial purity to our country that we need to, uh, and that that six million Jews uh, uh, consequently were killed in the Holocaust. Sixty three percent, sixty three percent did not know six million Jews had died in the Holocaust. Among, I think it's like twenty four to thirty five. So I, I just I only say that as an as, as an aside because we're talking right now about you know the rough parallels between uh, the rise of the um, you know, National Socialists in in Germany in the early 30s and what's happening now. But it, I feel like today more than ever uh, it's important for us to uh, be aware uh, of these historical alarms. And I guess part of it uh, I worry that people have heard Nazi. And Hitler abused so much over the years as a kind of bludgeon against one's enemy that we're not paying attention to the details that actually are there, right?
2: Right. No, an, an ethnic, a popular ethnic-based nationalism will uh, weaken and r- run roughshod over democracy because the we uh, is completely constituted differently. It's not all citizens, we the people... Um, but it's a particular version of the people, ethnically based. And in Germany, this resonated to the degree that in the World War, two million German soldiers died, and two million were wounded. And so the body of the people was was terribly wounded. And to make appeals to repair this body and to go go into a new future of the Third Reich uh, had a degree of appeal, but it was based on us them categories that, of course, Hitler elaborated, uh, but also come out of the World War. And this appealed to uh, many, many Germans uh, in 1932 and increasing numbers after 1933, because Hitler was able to portray the Nazis as the representatives, the stewards, the guardians of the nation. His opponents then were traitors. And he did this He could do this via spectacle with these tremendous rallies. The radio, as a government minister, he had a monopoly on the radio. Political opponents were not allowed to use the radio. And people believed the radio back then more than newspapers because they thought it was direct and unedited. And so the sounds of the radio, and I'm not talking about Hitler's words. I'm talking about the applause and the screams of the crowd that people hear Mm -hmm. through the broadcast. Are, seem to stand in for the jubilation of the nation. And wh- how these rallies were created, it's not that everyone sits around a radio and listens to a Hitler speech that he's giving live somewhere else. These are live events all around the nation. They, they have their own rallies. They have their own torchlight parades in big town, little town. And then uh, the radio is put onto the market square, And uh, Hitler's speech is broadcast, and the Nazis ask that people turn on their radios and open up their windows so that the sound goes into the streets, the sound of the nation, the sound of the awakening nation goes into the streets. And so people are not passive. Uh, They are active participants in these um, radio broadcast rallies because they have their own uh, rally and parade on the marketplace. And this becomes then a national feeling what is deceptive about all of this is it's just simply not all germans and uh and hitler was extremely frustrated he thought with all this enthusiasm he must he must have way over a majority uh right. but that ne- that never happens and uh <laughs> even in the last elections you know we can say they're semi free they they're more or less accurate um the uh the nazis only get 43% uh along with their mm-hmm. coalition partners they they eke out 52%. Uh this is this after months of ca- weeks of campaigning and and weeks of radio noise this is not exactly impressive. But it's right. enough. It's enough. And That's because right. the the enthusiasm and the momentum and the dynamics and the visuals and the acoustics are all on the Nazi side. They draw in more and more Germans, and so this 52% grows. And people decide to cross the threshold into the Third Reich to see the unity, to see the importance of allegiance and loyalty to Germany, to finally get rid of the political disunity and fragmentation uh, and street fighting that had existed, uh, and, to, and, and to go into the Third Reich. And rally after rally, more and more people... Cross that threshold, and importantly, more and more people saw their neighbors crossing the threshold, thinking their neighbors had suddenly become convinced and had become converts. And no one knew where the line was between fear, opportunism, and desire. Uh, but what you saw were these immense uh, public meetings and assemblies, and that convinces more and more people that this is it. This is the new Germany, whether we like it or not, and we have to make our peace with it. And in fact, there's many good things about it. Comradeship is a virtue. National unity is a virtue. Um, uh, Caring for uh, for the national community and, and healing it after the World War and the Treaty of Versailles, all those are national virtues. And most Social Democrats and Communists have been veterans themselves in the World War sixty percent. And so they could they could go back to their past as veterans fighting for Germany against the French and and, and you and that became a usable past in the Nazi presence.
1: Mm.
2: But I mean, I mean one
1: of the other Yeah, go ahead.
2: Well I just want to just outline some differences though. And uh, they are uh I think very pertinent. Uh one, uh Hitler is a uh Uh, A a extremely intelligent and dedicated political ideologue who uh, is the leader of the largest political movement that Germany has ever seen. And he's on the cusp of a a real revolution. Um, Number two, his base is young, educated, and dynamic. The German universities are the first place uh, that became Nazi, and, uh, uh, so it's an extremely young and dynamic future-oriented base. This is almost the opposite of the rural, um, <clears throat> and, and rather old, uh, base, uh, that, uh, that, that Trump has. Uh, right. And, and three, Hitler has a militia, um, that becomes an auxiliary to the police, uh, within 25 days of him coming to power, at least in the huge state of Prussia. And so suddenly all his bully boys are actually policemen. Uh, and this, uh, militia is 400,000 people large. That's bigger than the German army and the Prussian police force put together. This is a huge, huge, uh, force. And, uh, and so, uh, this we, you know, we have militias now, whereas we had much fewer before. But the scale is, uh, is very different also the judiciary in Germany, the universities in Germany, all quickly make their peace. All the big institutions uh, that had survived the uh, revolution um, are, are nationally inclined, nationalistically inclined. And so it's far easier for them to think that they can work with Hitler uh, than to to um, to imagine uh, living under a social democratic rule. And so there are not independent um powers uh, that can put checks on the federal authority uh, of hitler's government and uh, and that's of course different also in the united states this is inside the hive
0: in the 1980s and 90s new york city needed a tough cop like detective louis Scarcella, putting bad guys away
1: there's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought
2: to
0: justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of sh. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers. Started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. It's Garcella. We gotta show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f- themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The
2: Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the
1: iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. As we've been watching, uh, Donald Trump has attempted to politicize all these otherwise in- independent institutions, you know, from the CDC to the Justice Department and to the degree he can you know control otherwise independent institutions he kind of consolidates power and in ways that are a little bit you know frightening now we don't want to overstate that but and I don't want to overstate the analogy with Nazi Germany but I will say that I got interested in talking to you after and I'm one a person who had been skeptical for a long time of ever drawing those analogies, even saying that he's a fascist. I mean, I, I would always in my mind say, "This is America." I mean, come on, right? But one thing after one thing leads to another, and the next thing you know, you see uh, Donald Trump having a convention event on the lawn of the White House, and the spectacle of it being so, uh, you know, a nationalistic, but seeming to be. Um, Over you know, taking the people's White House and using it as a kind of propaganda force, and uh, and I would also say just and you can tell me what you think about this, but yes, uh, the demographics of Trump's following are older, and he certainly doesn't have a lot of following in the universities in, in the country. But there are these sort of independent groups that we're seeing cropping up uh, who are younger. Uh, kind of right-leaning and in some kind, in cases violent uh, groups, you know, the the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys. Now these might be, you know, seem marginal, but we're seeing more and more of them, and they seem to be kind of moving into the center of the conversation, whereas they might have been not, you know, even five I, I years ago. I think that's
2: a very good point because uh, if you look at the history of Germany before there were lots of Nazis running around, there were a lot of nationalist groups running around with all sorts of names. Some armed, some not armed. And so it's not the Nazis who invent, uh, these nationalist, uh, groups, uh, that, uh, that persecute Jews, that hound socialists and so on. Uh, that existed throughout the 1920s. And so, uh, and then they transformed, uh, themselves, uh, and many entered the ranks of the, uh, SA, the brown shirts so the 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 analogy is that you you have these things in America at all they might not yet or they might not be of the same size but we didn't think in these terms about America 5 or 6 years ago as you said well this is America and the America that you have in mind is a fair play checks and balances and democratic procedure and the rights of the minority and um, and the America that's in maga it's very different. The make America great means that they're villains who have undone America. But there are now mm-hmm. the virtuous who can remake America and make it great again. I call it muscular populism, muscular, melodramatic mm-hmm. populism, because it relies on villains and heroes. Uh, villains and the virtuous, uh, one who destroyed America, the villains, and two, the virtuous who will... Uh, remake America. So it's very muscular. Trends about globalization or, uh, post-industrial economy or all of that is irrelevant. Uh, it's a, it's a melodramatic game between, uh, the villainous and the virtuous. That's right. And that's their vision of America. And, and that's not the vision of America that is expressed in the statement, oh my God, of course, this is America. Right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's yeah. different conceptions about the Constitution, about fair play, um, and respecting your opponent. Right.
1: Well, and we, you know, this election, the intensity of it, um, the historical import of it is revolving around exactly that, what you're talking about, the conception of what this country is going to be. You know, on the right, right and, it's and, America and, or socialism.
2: <laughs> right. And and the uh, the importance of a um, a white ethnic America, is much more important in Trump's campaign than the vision of a Aryanized Germany was in Hitler's electoral campaign.
1: That's interesting.
2: Uh, uh, people are uh, People are voting not on the economy, but on identity and culture. And it's not right. that their personal finances have suffered, but they see that other people have cut in line and are getting government resources that they haven't earned. And um, and so they, the economy is seen through this lens of racial resentment and ethnic resentment, and that's very big right now. And mm-hmm. for the German electorate, uh, more and more, the Jewish question became more and more important and more and more central, uh, and, and Jews were just aghast at all of this. But the election didn't turn on... German um, uh, Aryan identity in in the same way uh, as it is today. But then very quickly, Germans became very fluent in these categories of uh, Aryan and non-Aryan and made them their own.
1: Mm. Right. Well, and maybe you can speak for a minute about some of the affinities uh, between uh, the you know the Nazi Germany in that early thirties and what was going on in the United States at the time where talk a little bit about uh, for a minute about Charles Lindbergh for instance uh, there's a there's a new book out called cast um it's yes. like a, a maybe on the bestseller list and it, and it points out that you know when the Germans were architecting uh, their own the Nazis were architecting their own. Uh, government and ideas, they looked to the United States to see, you know, for instance, uh, Jim Crow laws and other kinds of like, um, you know, the way our legal system managed to institutionalize, um, you know, racism. Um, Can you talk about that?
2: Well, with Jim Crow, uh, that is a a very grassroots movement enforced uh, by the individual actions of so many uh, people both in the south and the north about what was right in terms of who could sit where uh... who could be where they were and uh... and it was really enforced at at every level of social interaction it is true that anti uh, anti anti-semitism rises and 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 the the book that german jews had to warn them away from certain spas and hotels Grows in the number of pages throughout the 1920s, and so that's a grassroots anti-Semitism by uh, hotel owners and rest owner, restaurant owners. But it's 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 not a imposed anti-Semitic regime uh, like Jim Crow. So in that sense, uh, uh, I, I think that there are, are differences, and it's amazing that Jim Crow is still in, in in so many ways alive in terms of voter suppression and the like what's Mm -hmm. interesting about looking at america 1932 and germany 1932 is that um well one one thing is is when roosevelt was elected in november 1932 there were all sorts of parties um i mean prohibition was still there but people danced out of joy Mm -hmm. uh at least democrats did but it was an overwhelming victory uh nazis don't dance (laughs) they
1: Mm -hmm. march that's interesting
2: that's that's (laughs) one difference uh, the other is only two percent of Americans in the in November election voted for either the communists or the socialists. So people still stayed with the two parties, the, the, the two system parties. So there was not anti-system. Uh, uh, there wasn't system disloyalty in the same degree to which you had in Germany, where the communists and the Nazis have a actual negative majority in in the parliament and uh roosevelt spoke on the radio to friends said my, you know my friends uh hitler, hitler did not refer to germans in these um, intimate and and friendly and friendly ways americans blamed themselves for the great depression you have all sorts of um, poets and artists and reporters on the road in 31 32 33 and uniformly they talk about the disorientation of americans the fear the the sense that they blame themselves that they don't quite comprehend what has happened in Germany. People saw this in very partisan terms. The revolution had occurred. The Soviet Union is um, um, down the block, so to speak, uh, in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. and um, uh, they see things in very very partisan political partisan terms: socialists, fascists, na- Nazis, um, and uh, and and they blame the system. And they don't blame themselves. So those are some of the those are some of the differences. Um, But anti Roosevelt and anti New Deal uh, sentiment will grow in the late 1930s, especially when associated with the possibility of uh, American intervention in another European war. And and so you have a new group of leaders that uh, of prominent figures, including Charles Lindbergh who not only, he's a very eloquent and handsome man. Um, I, I think he's, he's actually a likable person, one-to-one. Um, but he his vision of America is up from Minnesota. It, it's, it's white, it's rural, it has, as his wife said, the cadence of the Old West. It is, it is, it is not um, comfortable with the cities, with the big city press certainly not after the kidnapping and murder of his little child and all the hoopla around that. And so he goes back to an older America uh, and appeals to that. That is the America that should not go into world a new world war. And that is the America that should not let itself be misled by the British and the Jews, who have justifiable interests, but they are not American interests. That is what he said at Des Moines... Uh, 9-11, 1941, uh, at the America First, uh, notorious America First rally. And so he divided Americans, uh, and Jews were not Americans. And the American interest uh, was not to be code-defined by them. And so he he had that same kind of, by the time we get to 1941, he had that same kind of um, us-them idea and a very old-fashioned, kind of virtuous, rural, real America uh, view of the United States that that was not coextensive with uh, New York City or Los Angeles or the movies or advertisements.
1: Right. Well, and that's one of the things I took from your book, by the way, is that, um, you know, as the Nazis are coming to power, Berlin is sort of this recalcitrant hotbed of, you know, socialists, other kinds of political parties, and they're slowly kind of drowned out by the Nazis over time. And uh, But there was, interestingly, in parallel to some degree, uh, some kind of distrust of what was going on in the cosmopolitan areas um, politically. Um, well, well that certainly and, true,
2: because you, you, your you're, you're average worker in Germany is unemployed. And he does not live on the main drags, uh, with the neon lighting in Berlin. And, and he's resentful of that too. Um, they have always, most workers have always voted socialist and communist. But the Nazis can pry into that, uh, majority and talk about what has this Weimar state done for you? Uh, this cosmopolitan elitist state with all this jazz and and the neon lights downtown, um, that's not going to help you. And so the Nazis were able to nibble into the working class vote. It's wrong to suggest that the Nazis didn't have workers behind them. They did. But most workers remained loyal to the socialists and the communists. Um, But as I say, they were able to nibble. And also what's distinctive about the Nazis is richer the precinct, the bigger the Nazi vote. So when you uh, analyze the, the... when you analyze the Clinton, uh, Trump counties, you know, all the rich counties are with Clinton, all the poor counties are with, uh, Trump. Um, that, that would be the opposite case in Germany. The, the, the rich pre- precincts would have been overwhelmingly Nazi and the, and the poor precincts would have had the higher, uh, socialist and communist vote and some Nazis.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and to draw a little bit more parallel, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer to think it was just the white working class, uh, you know, that brought Trump into power. There were a lot of wealthy middle class educated, uh, you know, white male voters exactly. uh, who, you know, and you think about the McCloskey's in Wisconsin, you know, they're these wealthy in Missouri, suburbanites. Yeah. Right. And um, I mean, uh, anyway, the, we could go on and on with this and I would love to. Uh, but I have to wind down this uh, this conversation right now, Peter. But I want to thank you, Peter Fritchie, uh, for coming on this show and, and really educating us what history can tell us. Hitler's first hundred days, when Germans embraced the Third Reich, uh, this is a crucial time to be educating ourselves and our young people. Frankly, after you know, looking at this poll I spoke of earlier, and I think all of us should be going into this election into this fall with our eyes wide open and armed. With this kind of education, so thank you very much, Peter, for coming well, thank on. Thank you to very Inside much. The Stay safe. And that's our podcast this week. I'd like to thank my co-host Emily Jane Fox, and of course, our Sterling producer Bob Tabador at Cadence Thirteen. If you want to hear more episodes of Inside the Hive, you can subscribe at Apple or Radio. dot com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast, and we will see you next week. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gap Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.